Well, while Pastor Jim is on vacation, I have the distinct privilege and joy of preaching the word to you. So we're going to be back in the book of James. If you find your way to James chapter 1, that's where we're going to be centering our thoughts today. James chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 15. And I'd like to begin by reading all of those verses. This is the word of God. James chapter 1, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. How in the world did we ever get in this mess? By now, the Los Angeles police were on their way. Our friends were hiding in the hills. A loud alarm was blaring throughout the neighborhood. And we had just ignored all of the clearly posted no trespassing signs that were outside of the fence. My friend Josh and I stood stunned outside the house, not quite sure what we should do now. Out of our zealous admiration for Bible teacher John MacArthur, here we were, now standing outside of his house, guilty of trespassing. We certainly could not blame God for our predicament. We were the ones that got ourselves into this. And it definitely did not happen suddenly. It's not like we woke up that morning and said, let's go get the cops called on us by John MacArthur. It was a gradual progression, a slippery slope. It all started out with an idea, a thought. It all started in our minds. A friend of ours told us that he happened to be neighbors with John MacArthur. Another friend of ours said that his parents went to his church. And because we were all overzealous Bible majors at the time, we loved the idea of having the chance to meet one of our spiritual heroes. And so we arranged a weekend to stay at our buddy's house and then attend Grace Community Church in the morning. Well, the night of the weekend finally rolled around, and a couple of my friends and I headed up to Los Angeles from San Diego. After settling in and eating dinner, we decided to take an innocent night stroll in the direction of John MacArthur's house. We did not anticipate at that point everything that was about to happen. But soon that little stroll led to us standing outside of his fence around 8 o'clock p.m. It appeared to us like nobody was home. Overcome by a desire to meet him, we decided that one of us had to hop the fence and make sure that it was his house. For some crazy reason, my friend Josh and I volunteered for the task. 
and then proceeded to hop the fence past all of the clearly posted no trespassing signs and past the this house is alarm signs and walk straight up to the door and knock on it. And then it happened. The alarm started blaring. The rest of our friends took off to hide in the hills and the cops were called. He was home after all. It's unfortunate that our first meeting with him had to begin like this. And as I look back on that incident, thankfully I can laugh about it now and so can you at my expense. I'm struck by how innocent the whole thing started out. As I mentioned, we never actually planned to trespass on his property. At first, we were lured and enticed by our own desire to meet this man who meant so much to us. Then, motivated by desire, we found ourselves violating the no trespassing signs and ended up disobeying the law. And finally, that disobedience ended leading to consequences. This experience, while obviously not as serious as other examples in life, is an illustration of the progressive process of temptation and sin. I'm sure that each of you here this morning can recall a similar time in your life when temptation got the best of you. Maybe that strong desire for power or authority negatively influenced you that one time to cut corners on your way up the corporate ladder and possibly to step on others in the process. Maybe it was the time that you strongly desired the approval of others. So you embellished a particular detail, that story, or that account, or that incident. Perhaps it was a desire to have some alone time at the end of a long day. Nothing wrong with that in and of itself. You just wanted to kick back and relax. But then that disobedient child came running into the room and you blew up at them in sinful anger. Temptation is a reality for every single one of us here this morning. And, and recognizing this, my goal today is to expose the enemy of temptation for what it is in order for us to gain the upper hand on it. Sometimes knowing and understanding an enemy can help us overcome them. For example, a professional sports team will sometimes analyze an opposing team by watching them on film. They'll study the plays that their opponents run, their opponents' defensive strategies. They'll look at how that team operates, and, and they're better equipped to play against them and possibly even gain the victory over them. In a similar way, when we cut open the cadaver of the body of temptation and examine its anatomy, all of its inner parts and inner workings will be exposed and we will see it for what it really is. And, Lord willing, this will put us in a better place to be able to wage war successfully against it. There are two steps that we need to take in order to perform this autopsy. 
to do this, I want to look at temptation this morning from, from a negative and positive perspective, so to speak. First, we need to examine where temptation does not come from. And then second, we will be able to identify where temptation does come from. Let's begin in verse 13 and first examine where temptation does not come from. Look with me at verse 13 again. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. You may remember from the last time I preached that James begins his discussion with the reality and benefits of trials in our lives. In verses 1 through 12, he argues that trials are used by God to produce in us maturity, wisdom, and humility as we endure them by faith. But now, in verses 13 through 15, James addresses a related but different concern. He wants us to know that the trials in our lives can sometimes come in the form of temptation. Or, sometimes, we can even be tempted in the midst of trials and adversity. But James is quick to point out in verse 13 that whereas trials often do come from God into our lives, the temptations that we face do not come from Him. And by the way, I think the best way to tell the difference between a trial and a temptation is the outcome or end result. A trial is, is brought into the life of a believer by God in order to produce obedience and holiness. Whereas a temptation arises from either the flesh, the world, or the devil in order to bring about disobedience and sin. So they have different origins and they have different outcomes. God may have something to do with that particular trial in your life, but he has nothing to do with the temptations in your life. And this is for two main reasons. On the one hand, this is because God cannot be tempted. Notice what James says in the middle of verse 13. God cannot be tempted with evil. Sin is absolutely contrary to the holy nature and character of God. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 says that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Habakkuk the prophet declares that the eyes of God are too pure to look on evil. He cannot tolerate wrongdoing. God cannot be tempted by evil. Now this may lead you to ask, wasn't Jesus tempted in the wilderness? Matthew chapter 4. And isn't he God? After all, Hebrews 4 verse 15 says that Jesus was tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. What are we to make of this? I think the best answer to this is that ultimately what James is saying is that God cannot be successfully tempted by evil. And the same is true for Jesus Christ. He was tempted to be sure, but he was not successfully tempted. That is to say, Satan attempted to launch his full arsenal at Christ, but was ultimately unsuccessful. 
Perhaps an illustration here might help. Let's pretend that we go down to the beach one day, we all gather there, and, and a thick fog rolls in. It's so thick that we can't even see each other. Looks like it's going to ruin our plans, but it's no problem because the men go to their trucks and they grab their long fog hooks and they just start, start pulling down the fog until eventually the fog clears away and we get on with our meeting. Now, what's the problem with this illustration? There's no such thing as a fog hook. Why? Because there's nothing about the nature of fog that allows you to grab a hold of it. And, and in the same way, there's nothing about the nature of Christ that allows sin to be able to grab a hold of him. Jesus speaks of the devil in John chapter 14, verse 30, and says, He has no hold on me. There was nothing in the holy nature of Christ for Satan to grab a hold of. Try as he might, Satan cannot successfully tempt Christ. Just how two men in a rowboat with shotguns cannot successfully attack an aircraft carrier. They can try, but not going to be successful. So Satan cannot successfully tempt Jesus Christ to sin. And this is because God cannot be tempted by evil. On the other hand, temptation is not from God because God does not tempt. James adds at the end of verse 13 that God himself tempts no one. And certainly the one who cannot be successfully tempted by evil would not himself tempt his creatures to commit evil. What this means is that God is not only holy in his character, but he's holy in all that he does. It's not just who he is that is holy, but all that he does is holy as well. And and this is why we should not blame God for the temptations in our lives. You remember that after the fall, Adam and Eve were confronted by God. and, And God asked them, have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? It always amazes me that Adam actually has the audacity to blame God for his sin. Listen to what he says. The woman whom you gave me, she gave me the fruit and I ate. He actually blames God for his sin. And and ever since this first sin, humanity has been prone to blame God for the temptations that they experience. But James tells us that temptation does not come from God specifically because he cannot be successfully tempted by evil, and as a result, he does not tempt anyone. So where then does temptation come from? Let's look now at our second point, beginning in verse 14, where temptation does come from. Notice verse 14 again. But each person is tempted when he is allured and enticed by his own desire. Verse 15, then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now, James offers four specific stages or steps in the process of temptation. And as we walk through these stages, I want to adopt the language of David Platt. He's currently the president of the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention. And he uses four specific words. And and I want to use these. Uh, He talks about deceit, 
desire, disobedience, and death. Let's look at the first one. Temptation starts with deceit. James says in verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed. The term, the term for lured is used in the first century of a hunter who sought to lure his prey from its place of safety or a fisherman who tried to entice a fish to take the bait. Just like this, temptation comes to us with the intention of deceiving us into taking its bait. From a distance, temptation promises lasting satisfaction and fulfillment, but in reality, it's nothing more than a baited hook. When we pass through it, we're able to see that it promised more than it could deliver. And if we fail to see past the deceptiveness of temptation, then it will lead, secondly, to desire or lust. The word for desire here can be used in the New Testament both positively and negatively to express a wish, want, or desire, but predominantly it's used negatively to convey some illicit desire or sinful desire. And that's why sometimes translations will translate it as lust. Um, lust or desire really originates in the mind and it, it comes after we buy into the lie of temptation. It's, it's an alluring or, or captivating desire for something which God forbids. Left to incubate in the womb of our minds and hearts, lust will lead to the birth of disobedience. That's the third step. Disobedience. James says in verse 15, then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And it's important to note at this, at this point that, that sin is a process. It's not just something that, that happens overnight, so to speak, even if that's may, that may be how it appears to us. But, but there's stages that lead to our sinful attitudes, words, and actions. It all starts in the mind. It starts in the thoughts. And it progresses and turns into sin only when we fail to deal with it in our minds. If we continue to dwell on the lust, indulge it, allow it to fester in our minds, perhaps even to fantasize about it, rehearsing a sinful situation in our minds, then it translates into sin. Deceit leads to desire, and desire, if incubated and indulged, will surely lead to disobedience. And the thing to note is that this ultimately leads to the last step, death. When we keep watering and feeding this desire, it will eventually sprout up into the plant of sin. And sadly, this plant will soon manifest itself as a crop failure. James says at the end of verse 15, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. This is ultimately where all sin leads. Again, remember Genesis chapter 3, God tells them, the day you eat of the forbidden tree, you will surely what? Die. The Bible says in Romans 3.23, the wages of sin is 
death. While it may not be immediate, the eventual and certain end for all sin is death. As we close today, I want to take a few moments and and provide some points of application for your consideration. There are four specific thoughts that I want to pursue. First, in your battle with temptation, remember that God is your ally and not your enemy. Remember that God is your ally and not your enemy. God has given us everything that we need to overcome temptation and sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 30, excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 13 says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Now, what are some of the ways out that God has given to us in his word? Well, I think first we can offensively fight against it with the word of God in prayer. So I think I'm thinking of here um, the weapon of scripture memory. Psalm 119 verse 11 says, I have hidden your word in my heart in order that I might not sin against you. This is exactly how Jesus battled the evil one in the the desert. Remember in Matthew chapter 4, for every temptation that Satan set in front of him, Jesus cut them down with the sword of the Spirit, the word of God. And that is how you and I should do battle as well. I think also about the weapon of prayer. Jesus instructed his disciples to pray, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And on the night of Jesus' betrayal in the Garden of Gethsemane, he caught his disciples sleeping. And he comes up to them and says, watch and pray so that you will not enter into temptation. If we are to marshal an effective attack against the enemy of temptation, then we must wake up every single morning and ask that God would deliver us out of temptation. Deliver us away from the evil one and give us the strength to fight against it. So first, there's an offensive way to fight against temptation. But as a second strategy, I think we can defensively take flight away from it. Sometimes the most effective way for dealing with temptation is simply to run away from it, like Joseph did with Potiphar's wife. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18 says, Flee from sexual immorality. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.22, Flee from youthful lusts. One writer says, quote, When it comes to temptation, it pays to be a coward. He who hesitates and rationalizes is lost. He who runs lives. End quote. In other words, as it has been well said, he who would not fall down ought not to walk in slippery places. So for some of you, I think this may mean doing whatever you can to minimize being by yourself when temptation is at its height. For others of you, it may mean taking inventory of your day and filling up your schedule so there are no unaccounted for margins of free time in which you could potentially be vulnerable to temptation. 
It may mean that you need to reschedule your lunchtime. So you're not around that particular person or influence. So you're not tempted to sin. These are just a few of the many weapons that God has given to us to fight against the onslaught of the enemy or to take flight away from it. So in our battle with temptation, we must remember that God is our ally and not our enemy. Second, in your battle with temptation, you must remember that sin starts in your mind before it manifests itself in your life. Sin starts in your mind before it manifests itself in your life. And if we stop sin at the level of the mind, it will not turn into sin. Martin Luther, the great Reformation pastor, said, I cannot keep birds from flying over my head, but I can keep them from making a nest in my hair. And this is why it's so important for all of us to control our thought lives. You cannot constantly indulge fantasies in your mind and then expect to see victory over sin in your behavior. Rather, as Romans 12 says that we must renew our minds with scripture in order to be transformed into a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Third, in your battle with temptation, remember that thinking about the end result of sin can help you stop it at the beginning. Remember that thinking about the end result of sin can help you stop it at the beginning. And I personally found this to be one of the most effective strategies for fighting against temptation. A few years ago during seminary, I was encouraged to read a little book by Randy Alcorn entitled The Purity Principle. The book's gold. It's just a little gift book, but I've tried to read it every single year. And although the book primarily deals with the area of sexual temptation, the principles of the book are transferable to just about any area of temptation. At one place in the book, Alcorn talks about how he's taken the time to write down on paper a list of all the potential consequences that would come from engaging in some form of immorality. And over the years, Alcorn has routinely read this list. He reads it before trips. He's even memorized it. And, and he said that it has filled him with a sense of holy fear. For example, he wrote down the question, what would my adultery do? And he lists the following consequences. Drag in the mud the reputation of my Lord. Make me have to look into his face one day and tell him why I did it. Cause untold hurt to my loyal and faithful wife. Forfeit my wife's respect and trust. Permanently injure my credibility with my children. Bring great shame on my family. Inflict hurt on my church and friends, especially those that have led to Christ and disciples. Bring an irretrievable loss of years of witnessing to relatives and friends. Bring pleasure to Satan, God's enemy. Lose my self-respect, discredit my name, and invoke lifelong embarrassment upon myself. And I've created a similar list for myself, and I encourage you to do the same. Identify that recurring temptation, that recurring sin, and, and think about the potential end results that could come in the aftermath. 
Think about the consequences that may come from visiting that pornographic website. The guilt and the shame. The potential that it has to be addictive and bring you into bondage. The possibility of your wife or your family or your friends finding out about it. The knowledge that you supported an industry that exploits women. Think about the consequences that can come from sinful anger. The embarrassment of others seeing you blow up over something so small. The possibility of you losing control and hurting yourself and others in the process. The damaged relationships that can result in its weight. Think about what could happen if you give in to worry and anxiety. The sleepless nights, the loss of appetite, the physical problems that could result, the loss of joy throughout the day. These are just some of the things that you can think about. The end result, the outcome of specific sins can give you the power to stop temptation at the beginning. Finally, in your battle with temptation, remember that everything temptation promises pales in comparison to what God promises. Whereas sin uses the element of deceit to trick us, God always tells us the truth, the way that things really are. Temptation always overpromises and underdelivers. But God always keeps his promises and delivers exactly what he says that he will. Whereas temptation appeals to our fleshly desires, lying to us that it can provide satisfaction and pleasure, only God in Jesus Christ can fulfill all of our longings and desires in a meaningful way. To be sure, sin does bring pleasure. Otherwise, we wouldn't be tempted by it. But it's only a fleeting pleasure. Hebrews 11.25 calls it the fleeting pleasures of sin. Sin cannot bring ultimate and lasting fulfillment. Only God can do that. Whereas temptation leads to disobedience, God promises to us holiness. And, as it has been well said, holiness is indeed the path to true and lasting happiness. Finally, whereas sin leads to death, God alone gives eternal life in Jesus Christ for those who repent of their sins and trust in the perfect and finished work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. Some of you may remember Gerald Tolkien's book, The Hobbit. He talks about the fierce and ruthless enemy, a dragon named Smaug. And with his thick, hard outer scales, Smaug was virtually impenetrable by weapons. He was even seemingly invincible. But unknown to Smaug, as you know, there was one small chink in the armor of his underbelly. That was all it took for Bard, the skilled archer, to pierce his heart and bring the great dragon down. 
Bard's knowledge of this weakness enabled him to successfully bring down the arrogant and notorious dragon. And can I suggest to you that in a similar way, when we understand the anatomy of the enemy of temptation, we're better equipped to wage war against it. And by targeting its weaknesses, we can defeat the slithering and sinister monster in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would lead us not into temptation, that you would deliver us from the evil one. Give us the strength to fight against the onslaught of the enemy. Give us the courage, ironically, to take flight away from the enemy. Pray that we would do this by the power of your spirit. We would do it out of love for your son, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, as we transition,